it's the never-ending nightmare. We wake up, we we it, we just relive it. It's just it's I just can't believe it's happened. It's um we 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 just don't have our boy. We just he's we have no idea where he is. We don't know who's got him. We don't know what's happening to him. We know nothing about it. What happens when a child disappears? What runs through your mind as a parent in those first few moments as you fear the worst possible scenario? And what happens when police arrive at the scene? And why those first 24 hours after a child goes missing are critical to the investigation? In episode three, we will take you through those first chilling moments after little William vanished. Why his foster mother knew immediately someone had taken her son and the faint scream she thought she heard after in the surrounding bushland. We will also hear from some of the key investigators who were first to arrive on Benaroon Drive on that morning on the 12th of September 2014 as the true enormity of William's disappearance started to unfold. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, we're going to talk about every specific detail of when William disappeared that morning in this episode. But before we do, just take us back a couple of minutes, like half an hour before he disappeared. What games were they playing in the yard? So they'd been drawing these pictures for Opar and um, they were playing a game with the dice and uh, eventually William got bored with that and he jumped off the deck and he was playing a game he liked to call Daddy Tiger, which was him running around roaring like a tiger. Uh, And at some point Jane went inside to make some cups of tea and she came back out with the tea and her and Margaret were sitting on the patio just having a chat watching William play this game. We hadn't played it many times before, but we'd played Mummy Monster doing chasings. Um, at the lower part of the house and you know it's a bit of a it's a variation on a hide and seek tip sort of game but yeah no it was mummy monster and then um it became he, day he played them more at home yeah. than at mum and dad's yeah. yeah it just happened to be that, that day he was you know yeah it's playing it there playing it there and that just goes to show how natural and comfortable he felt like the what he would ordinarily do at home mm. is what yeah. he did up there. So it was not... Nothing, out, nothing out, out of the ordinary. ordinary. Nothing out of the ordinary at all, completely all normal, normal things. Yeah. So as we can hear there, everything was normal. It was a normal day. They were outside playing and he was continuing, William was continuing to play this tiger game. And then all of a sudden there was one last roar. And him sort of ducking around the corner and roaring and that kind of thing. That was that was normal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He'd, he'd do that at home. And that that corner is, I don't know, how many meters away? Two, three. The corner is it's not, not far, very far. It's not far. Mm-hmm. And you you do you have to think that um, I didn't have any reason to think that him ducking around a corner would end in this. So she knew pretty quickly, didn't she, Jane, that something was wrong because she couldn't hear William. Yeah, and immediately she she thought, mm, I haven't heard him for a while and he was the kind of child that would always stay very close. So that immediately sort of 
sparked her concern. She stepped off the patio, walked around the corner expecting to see him playing, expecting to see his little Spider-Man outfit and um, that's when she realised that he wasn't there and she started frantically searching for him. I'm speechless. I'm walking around in a circle on the spot thinking, where is he? Why can't I see him? And I'm yelling out, William, where are you? You need to talk to Mummy. Tell me where you are. I can't see you. I can't hear you. Where, where are you? And he was nowhere. And, I just, and I'm just standing there thinking, how could he just disappear? Now, time-wise, Leah, that was about 10.30 in the morning. And you've spoken with Jane and she's told you at that very moment she realised or she had feared that someone had taken him. Yeah, she said that thought crossed her mind really early on, knowing William, knowing what kind of child he was. He wasn't a wanderer. He was always very drawn to his foster parents and always very wary of where he was. So straight away, it it crossed her mind that something has happened, someone's taken him. At home, in the backyard, you, you, you have to assume that children are safe in their own backyards and in their own homes and they've been up there more than enough and that location, it's quiet. The only people who go up that road are typically the people who live there. It's a cul-de-sac. It's white so, yeah. so what made me think that he was snatched, that somebody had taken him, was the fact that I couldn't see him going into the bush I couldn't see him running down the slope to that, to the street. I, it, no, it was just, he wouldn't do it. I, I actually, do I don't have the words to describe what it was like standing there, looking out and thinking, why is he not here? Like, I don't understand this. But it's the only, somebody was there. Leah, of course, as this is all unfolding at Margaret's house that Jane is looking for William in such a panic, Peter is in town finishing up his meeting, he's gone to the pharmacy and then he sent Jane a text saying, home in five. Peter was on his way back to Benaroon Drive. He picked up the local paper as well um, for Margaret because he'd asked him to and he they were in the habit of sending a text message when he was on his way home. And this was because the kids obviously loved it when dad would come home and they would get all excited. So Jane would let them know that he was almost home and they would go outside and greet him excitedly when he arrived. So he sent the text using the Siri function on his phone, which as we know, means that you can send it by voice when you're driving. And the text message said, home in five. And that text message in those panicked few moments when Jane is frantically trying to search for William, that sparked a little bit of hope in her, didn't it? She thought perhaps that somehow William might have wandered off and Peter had picked him up on the way back or maybe William had gone looking for him and for some reason just thought there was a chance that perhaps William was with Peter. So she decided once she got that message not to panic too much until he got home. And as she's continuing that search, Jane started to knock on a couple of neighbours' doors. Take us through what was going on there. So Jane made her way up and down the street um, searching and that's when she was seen by a neighbour. Anne-Marie Sharpley lived across the road from her mother's house there on Benaroon Drive and she was having a cigarette on her front porch and, and spotted Jane looking very distressed. So she approached her and asked her what was wrong and that's when Jane started crying and told her that her little boy was missing and that his name was William and he was wearing a Spider-Man suit. So that's when Anne-Marie comforted her and told her, breathe, it's okay 
will find him. So the two of them then proceeded to search up and down the street for him, calling out his name. So, Leah, as Jane is frantically searching for little William, Peter pulls up at the driveway, of course not realising what was unfolding. Yeah, so Peter pulled up after getting back from his business meeting and Jane ran towards the car and frantically asked him, is William with you? And he's obviously got no idea what's going on. He's very confused and he said, no, why would he be with me? Expecting that he was going to be at the house with Jane. And so Jane then had to tell him what had happened, that he'd been playing in the yard and suddenly vanished and they hadn't been able to find him. And so obviously... Peter's face just dropped and he's comprehending what's happening, that his, his precious little boy is missing. Can't begin to imagine what that would have been like for Peter. Not realising the day would have been normal, he would have finished his business meeting, he had said goodbye to beautiful William playing in his Spider-Man outfit and then returns to this unimaginable horror as little William is gone. Yeah, and as I mentioned before, sending that text message on his way home to say that he was going to be home in five, he's expecting for the kids to greet him excitedly when he got home, as they always would, and instead he's confronted with this awful situation that one of his children is missing. Then said to said, well, where is he? Where, 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 where's he gone? She said, he was, he was here five minutes ago, here five minutes ago. Still sitting down. Yep. All right. I said, well, where's he gone? I can't find him. So I then, I, w- I won't run for the purposes. Yeah, right? we'll have to keep it up. Um, but I started to go down here. I was calling his name. Were you motion? Sorry? Were, were you motioned this way, do you think? Or was she actually identified she, she said that he was, he was last seen around here. Yep. But I thought, OK, well, you know, if he was down at the road, you possibly would have seen him. So um, he's, he's, in, he's in his bright... Clothes. Just for the video. Yep. Just can you say just how loudly you said that? You just to, so we can have an example. William, William. And Leah, that is Peter recalling those first few moments after Jane had told him that William was gone. So that video was actually recently released by the coroner's court and it shows Peter walking a detective through his movements in those minutes after William went missing and after he got home. Um, And this was actually shot just a few days after William disappeared. So after being made aware of this scenario, Leah, Peter then runs towards a neighbour's house. Yeah, so he's standing in the clearing where William disappeared and what he's described to me is that he instinctively followed what he thought was the path of least resistance for a child, which what he described was downhill. So he ran downhill towards the neighbouring fence line, trying to retrace what he thought might have been William's steps and he still remembers that clearly almost five years later. I still remember remember your mum saying they'll find him. Mm. on the first day when it first happened. And I, there's all sorts of thoughts running through my head as to, you know, where has he gone, what's, what's happened. As Peter is frantically searching for William, Jane has been joined by two neighbours in their search. 
Two female neighbours had been helping Jane do this frantic search and one of them actually called her workplace shortly after to tell them she wouldn't be coming in for the day because she wanted to help in this search for William. So I think the seriousness of this situation was really starting to set in for all of them and that's when Jane actually decided it was time to call the police. And the timing of that call is very interesting because research shows the majority of parents or carers who have a child that is missing, they wait a couple of hours before calling the police, but Jane called police uh, 20 minutes after William disappeared. Yeah, so it was actually mentioned at the recent inquest that the average time it does take to call the police when a child goes missing is two hours and Jane called within 20 minutes. So it it just shows that how frantic they were as soon as this happened and, and how soon they knew that something was seriously wrong. We mentioned earlier that Jane pretty quickly thought that someone had taken William and then she makes the call to police 20 minutes after he disappeared. You know them pretty well. Why did they decide that and why do you think they feared something had happened to William and someone had taken him? They knew William so well and William was quite a cautious child. You know, he was a a little boy so he was still adventurous but he was still quite cautious and Jane actually talks about um, to me earlier that day she urged him to try and climb a tree and he didn't want to climb a tree, it was too high. And they've also spoken about how whenever he was playing he would always need to keep them inside or he would always check in and so... That's why they immediately knew this was completely out of character and that he would not willingly go missing for this amount of time without checking in with them or without getting scared that he he couldn't see them. I cannot begin to imagine what that is like, you know, those first few moments when you realise something awful has happened. And what's important, again, about that phone call is Jane made it from the landline. That's right. So as I mentioned in in the first episode, there's been a point of contention about the phone service and the fact that Peter had to go into town to do this online business meeting. And one of those points that keeps being made is that how was she able to call triple zero if there was no phone signal? And that's because she actually used the landline phone at her mother's house. So she went back inside, she grabbed the the cordless landline phone and she dialed triple zero. And this is actually the real recording of that call. Police emergency, this is Simone. Yeah, hi, my son is missing. He's three and a half. Okay. Sorry? What's your address? Benaroon Drive, Kendall. Okay, Benaroom Drive in Kendall. Yes. All right, I'm just going to bring that up on my map. It won't be a moment. Thank you. How long has he been missing? I th- well, I think, well, we've been looking in for him now for about 15 or 20 minutes, but okay. I thought it could be five, it could be longer, because he was just playing around here. We heard him, and then we heard nothing. Okay. So what the nearest cross street it's, being Ellendale uh, Crescent, is that right? So what is it? Ellendale Crescent? I don't know. My, this is my mum's house. I, okay. Um... Hang on, there's another lady out helping us look for him. I'll see if I can find her. But it's Benaroon, B-E-N-A-R-O-O. Yeah, I can see where you are. I'm just wondering, yeah, so it's Benaroon Drive in Kendall and I've got got your nearest cross street as being Ellendale Crescent. It could be, I don't know. Okay. So he's been missing since about 10.30? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay, can you describe him to me? How tall? Obviously not very tall. No, he'd he'd be about two and a half feet. He's wearing a Spider-Man outfit. Yep. What kind um, of hair has he got? He's got um, dark, sandy-coloured hair. It's short. And he's got really big, uh, browny, green-coloured eyes. Okay. What's he got? Any shoes on? Do you know any any other distinguishing? 
he has oh he's got a freckle on the top of his head when you part the hair on the left hand side. Yeah. You'll see a freckle on the top of his head. Okay. All right. Do you know where he might have gone? Um, we we actually live well none properties near a state forest. Okay. And they're on huge blocks. We've walked up and down Benaroon Drive and we can't find him. Okay. What's his name? William. What's William's surname? Uh, Tyrrell. T Y R E L L. Okay. Has he been known to sort of go anywhere? No, this is the first time. The first so it's completely out of character. There wasn't anyone um, suspicious in the area, any vehicles? No, 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 no. Okay. Well, not that, I'm, no, not that I'm aware of. We were just, I was out there talking with Mum and my other daughter, so... Okay. And we heard him roaring around the garden, and then I thought, oh, I haven't heard him. I'd better go okay. check on him and okay. All right. find him. We'll send police to see you at Benaroon driving Kendall. Yes, we'll also please. get that, um, a message broadcasted to all the cars that people look out for him as well, yes, okay? Ma'am. Thanks all right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You can hear the absolute fear in her voice and the panic, can't you, Leah? Yeah, you can hear that she's trying to remain calm Mm. but that she is absolutely panicked and terrified. And it's interesting she was struggling with knowing the cross street because these are all the details that as you are trying to comprehend what is unfolding right there and trying to work through the details is incredibly difficult. And it's interesting, she says there, as you mentioned earlier, it was completely out of character for William to go missing. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why she's so terrified because she knows it's out of character and it's dawning on her that something else must have happened So, Leah, after Jane alerted authorities that William had disappeared, she then proceeds to run back out to the neighbours' houses and the local street and continue the search. Yeah, so she hangs up the phone and she runs out and and keeps searching. The other neighbours are still searching, as is Peter, obviously. And this is when they started knocking on doors and asking people if they could check their yards for a little boy. Um, One of the other neighbours, Anne-Marie, actually went back up the hill to start talking to other neighbours and asking permission to check their properties. She knocked on the door of Paul and Heather Savage, who live across the road from Margaret's house on Benaroon Drive, um, directly across from the house. Paul answered the door and she told him they were looking for a little boy named William, so he also came out to help check the surrounding area. I'll talk more about this neighbour, Paul Savage, in a later episode. And minutes after that is when the first police car arrived at the scene. So as she made her way back up Benaroon Drive, a police car turned into the street and she waved them down knowing that that was for her. Um, New South Wales Police Senior Constable Chris Rowley heard the call over the police radio about 11am as he was driving through a nearby town and he immediately made his way there. He knew the local area very well and, and knew Benaroon Drive so he was actually there within six minutes of the call going out. So as Jane waved him down, she told him that her foster son had gone missing about half an hour earlier and they'd been unable to find him. So Senior Constable Rowley then drove up towards the end of the street to set up a command post near the house. This is an extract from Senior Constable Rowley's police statement, uh, but this is not his real voice. I pulled up outside 49 Benaroon Drive, which is a corner block where the street turns at right angles. The block was about two acres and slightly wooded. There was no fence line on the southern side that leads into Benaroon Drive. The female foster carer turned up at the house and I searched the premises while she was there. During that search, the male foster carer came out of the bathroom and was very emotional and upset. I told him I was searching the house and he said OK and went outside calling William. 
During my first search of the house, I opened cupboards and looked under beds, including the bed in William's room, which sat flush on the floor. In my initial search, I did not enter the roof space or open an outside garage door, which leads under the house. As we initially mentioned, when William first disappeared, the last thing Jane heard was that last roar, and then there was silence, deafening silence. There were no screams, there was no cars to be seen in the street, there was no one seen running from the scene. But then as Jane continued searching for little William, sometime after he disappeared, she walked into bushland near her mother's house and tell us what she heard. She can't remember exactly the time that this happened, but it was shortly after he went missing during that frantic search that she was doing. So she made her way down the end of Benaroon Drive to Batar Creek Road, which is the main road that intersects with Benaroon Drive. And uh, as she was searching properties, she then came to the corner near some dense bushland. She got to the end of the street and she heard what she thought sounded like a child crying out in pain. She describes this sound in her police statement. I thought I heard him crying. It was really muffled. It was a high-pitched sound and I thought the sound came from the bush. So when she heard that, thinking that it could have possibly been William, what did she do? So she started walking in the direction of the sound, as you instinctively would, and started making her way through that bush. But she turned back shortly after and she later told the coroner's inquest, actually, that she thought there was no way William would have wandered into that sort of undergrowth. And then she thought that perhaps maybe she'd imagined it, maybe it was a bird, not a child. So she backtracked and and went back up the street. Could she have possibly thought that that may have been someone that had taken William? and his cries could have been William? In hindsight, I'm sure that has crossed her mind, but in the context of the situation, you have to imagine she was still hoping, obviously, that he'd just wandered off, and instinctively when she heard that noise, she thought there's no way a three-year-old boy could make his way in there by himself. So um, she thought that her time was wasted investigating that sound and she, she went back up to continue searching elsewhere. You make an interesting point because it's really important information about how dense the bushland is around Margaret's house. Why is that important? It's important because if you've actually been there, which I have many times, it's very hard to imagine how a three-year-old could wander into that bush. It is, it's really dense undergrowth and even the people who were searching for William were struggling to make their way through this bush. You know, they were coming out with ripped jeans and, and you know, scratches and all that sort of thing. So it is hard to imagine how he alone would decide to wander into something like that. Alone, you say. Would that make it very easy, though, for someone to grab William and drag him into the bushland without being easily detected? I think anything is possible in this case. So after hearing that sound, Jane is then told by the authorities that she needs to go back and wait at home as they set up a command post. Yeah, so obviously in these types of situations, police need to have a reference point, someone that they can have there who's close to the situation, who can answer questions and establish exactly what's going on. And Jane knew there was no way Peter was going to be able to stay put in this situation, that he needed to go out and help with the search. So she decided to be the one who stayed at the house and helped them with their investigation. Like William Tyrrell, another case 
that baffled the nation was little Daniel Morecambe, who, of course, went missing in 2003 and he was 13 at the time that he went missing. You've been able to interview an investigator that was critical in that case to get some insight into what happens in the investigation of missing children and why, as we mentioned in the introduction, the first 24 hours after a child goes missing, it is critical to the ongoing investigation into finding out what happened. So for those who aren't familiar with the Daniel Morecambe case, he was a 13-year-old boy who disappeared from a bus stop on the Sunshine Coast in December of 2003. He was actually on his way to buy Christmas presents for his family when he vanished from the side of the road. While abduction was suspected very early on in this case, it remained unsolved for almost a decade until known pedophile Brett Peter Cowan was finally arrested for the kidnapping and murder in 2011. This then led to the discovery of Daniel's partial remains buried in dense bushland about 40 kilometres from where he disappeared. So Dennis Martin is a former detective with the Queensland Police Service and he helped solve that case. And he says the actions police take immediately after a child goes missing are crucial to finding them. If anyone, through human intervention, they can only do two things of investigative nature and that is one is somebody will leave something, always, to investigate or they take something away. Um, so and what I mean by that is that they will obviously leave DNA, footprints or, or some form of movement in the area that, that William would have been taken. And if for some reason that, that becomes difficult to obtain because of uh, other interventions such as searches, rain or, or, or other weather conditions, they will most certainly have taken something away with them. And by that I mean that in their car or their, or their whatever way they used transport or they carried him or whatever the case, they would have transferred some form of DNA from him to them, whether that be through thread, whether that be through, you know, his skin or whether that be through his hair follicles or whatever, they will have taken that away. So knowing full well that that's the case, you know, that's sort of what you'd be having in the back of your mind, which you'd be looking at for, for warrants and possibly where he could be hidden or taken away to. But I guess that because he was in a sort of like a semi-rural area, you know, you, you would most certainly have to be looking at um, if there was nobody in, sort of, I guess, in a close proximity where the child could be taken and hidden. Um, and in that nature, it should have been really uh, searched. Uh, and, of course, it would have been done voluntary. I'm sure that there would be nobody would object to having their back sheds checked in. Um you'd have to be looking at vehicle movement, which would probably be the most ideal way to take the child away if he was taken away by a vehicle. So you'd be looking at uh, petrol stops, um, all of your um, toll roads, CCTV, uh, dash cam from other vehicles. Um, You'd probably be doing triangulisation on all mobile phones that were used in that area at that time. Um, Obviously door knocks, so there's quite a lot of investigative methods that you would use to try and get somebody in that area at that time. So that, that would be, I guess, the easiest way to find out who would be in your immediate uh, response. Um, and I'm assuming that clearly they, they brought in um, heat-seeking uh, helicopters for any sort of upturned soil uh, in a reasonably short period of time uh, and dogs and whatnot for the initial search. So, which would have given them an area. Um, but I'm unsure of 
whether they cordoned off the area uh, immediately you know, where he was and just left a, a corridor there rather than search because they didn't need to traipse all over the front lawn, for example. Um, if, if he was last seen there, you'd clearly see he's not there. Uh, you know, was that taped off? Was that taken ready for some, for some DNA? Because as I said previously, someone will always leave something or take something away. And it's till, until it's proven that they didn't leave anything, that, that area should be quarantined and, and a corridor should be left open. But I don't know whether they've done that. So, Leah, did they? Tash, I was actually, as we've mentioned, at the scene shortly after William disappeared. And so I saw for myself that the crime scene was not cordoned off. It was never quarantined after he disappeared. And in fact, the command post was actually set up in the driveway just metres from where he was last seen. Why did they not quarantine or seal off the area? It's hard to say exactly why and not being in their position, but I do know that in those early moments and and hours, they thought they were looking for a little boy who had wandered off and that was their focus and, um, you know, it obviously perhaps didn't seem necessary to treat it as a crime scene. Um, But in hindsight, obviously, it's easy to see how perhaps it would have been better to do that. And I I actually wanted to speak to William's foster parents about this issue. So I called Jane recently and asked her what she thought about it. The expert that we spoke to for the podcast, Dennis, um, raised the issue of um, how important it is to quarantine a crime scene um, and to gather evidence in these kind of cases. Unfortunately, in, in William's case, it wasn't done. What are your thoughts on that and are you concerned about that? Well, I think um, if I just reflect on when it was all when it was all happening and police arrived, it was the furthest thought from our mind was to have it cordoned off. Um, we were just we were responding to um, you know, the need to to find William and the hope that he was that he was boy lost versus boy taken, and even though we felt in our heart of hearts that he was definitely boy taken, um, we just assumed that, you know, the police knew what they were doing and that they had the right protocols in place to to respond to a situation like this. So in hindsight and having, you know, heard the expertise from another um, police expert around having that section cordoned off, it makes perfect sense. And when I reflect back on that period, there, seriously, there were easily 10, 20, 30 people, 40 people that walked all through the house, the, the grounds around it, and all around um, Mum and Dad's garden and the grassy area. So it's no wonder that those dogs didn't get any scent, any post you know, where they where they ended up with. It's just um, so it does concern us um, because it's possible that there may be, that there may have been evidence, there may have been something that could have pushed police in an entirely different direction as opposed to the path that they took. I understand there's no protocol in place for these types of cases. Um, what do you want to see happen as a result of this? Mm. We're not blaming the responding officers and we're definitely not blaming the people who were in charge of the crime scene at that time because 
they were doing the best they could with what they had. And we are overwhelmingly grateful to how they responded. But you're right, it's the protocols aren't in place and those protocols do need to be in place because this is not the only time that a child's going to be abducted. I mean, you see on, you know, you see um, road accidents, they get cordoned off. Why wouldn't you cordon off the scene where a child gets, where a child's missing? I mean, I think, I think they most definitely need to change 100%. I think any time, particularly with a child, because, you know, a, a child's children do wander off. It is a fact. But at the end of the day, until, as you say, it can be definitively proven that they did wander off or they didn't wander off, then you absolutely need to quarantine the scene because you don't know what you don't have. And you need you need to be given... The police need to be given the opportunity to do that. And I think changing the protocols will 100% support that. Obviously, it's 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 too late for William's case to, to do this. Why do you want to have those protocols changed? Because any other family who has to go through what we've gone through should never, ever be put in this, this position, ever. And I think at a fundamental policing level, it's pretty simple to get the tape out and cordon off the police site, cordon off a, a crime scene. And it's a tiny protocol that has you know, police would spend minutes completing. So I don't see why it couldn't be instituted. So as you can hear there, um, William's foster parents are concerned that evidence may have been lost because the crime scene wasn't quarantined. Uh, And we understand that there is no specific protocol in place at the moment that requires police to quarantine a crime scene when a child goes missing. Now, obviously, the coroner is actually currently investigating William's disappearance and that inquest will resume in August. And they don't want to preempt what the coroner might examine or recommend, but they do hope that those changes to police protocol will be made as a result of this to ensure that in future missing child cases, the crime scene is quarantined and preserved so that evidence can be gathered. So, Leah, what did police do when they arrived at the scene? Senior Constable Rowley spoke about some of what he did when he arrived at the scene in his police statement. Among things I discussed with other officers was known nearby bodies of water and the family situation with William being a foster child. The weather was looking like it may turn bad, so I suggested we get the drains cleared as a priority. We discussed the child protection register and I told Sergeant Hardwick I did not think anyone was on it in Kendall and he stated that he would have that checked. So, Leah, as police are launching this major search operation for little William, Peter is also continuing to look for his little son. Yeah, so he's continuing to search neighbouring properties. And uh, as we can hear in that same interview that we played earlier, where he's walking a detective through his movements at the scene just a few days after he disappeared, he's standing at the neighbouring fence line, looking up towards his mother-in-law's house, and he's explaining exactly what was going through his mind when he was conducting that initial friend search. And is he a, a walker or a runner? Oh, he's, he's pretty, pretty more a walker. Mm-hmm. Pretty more a walker. But by this time, um, if this is where he is and this is what he's doing, he would start to be uh, a bit scared and a bit anxious. Mm-hmm. 
because he doesn't know where he is. He does tend to know some of his limitations because he gets asthma, and then he'd do that and he'd start coughing. Mm -hmm. So you've come through these properties somewhere? Yeah, I've gone down to the fence there. I've, I've travelled all the way down, yep. you know. Because look at this. Huh? Get it under this, under this easy. Yep. But he's not going to get. He's not going to get through this. Yeah. That's just too hard. But I did jump the fence. I went right through the garage. I went right through the other carport. I went right through everything. Yeah. And under, under the you... house. I think I came across that person there at some stage. And I said, um, "Have you seen a little boy, William? Have you seen a little boy?" She said, "No, no I haven't seen a little boy." Uh, eventually, after a second visit of this house. There was a lady there. She came out. She was smoking. I said, have you seen a little boy? She said, no, no, I haven't seen a little boy. I said, I've lost my little boy, William. And she said, look, oh, look, you know, I'll put, my, I'll put some shoes in. I'll come out and I'll help you. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, look, I, I'm going to keep going. But she, and then eventually I saw her back out on the road with others. In your opinion, would this scene be a bit daunting to William? Yeah. Yeah. This would, would turn him back? Yeah, yeah. Whilst initially he'd go, you know, oh, you know, adventure, but I couldn't see him doing it. Listening to Peter speak there is so heartbreaking. You hear him talk about William being scared and anxious. And then I didn't know he had asthma as well. Yeah, so that was obviously an added concern when they thought that he had wandered off, that they were concerned that if he was wandering around lost in the bush, that his asthma would also be obviously an added risk. And he didn't have his medication with him. And as we all know, with children with asthma, it can be sparked if they're scared, if they're concerned or if they're out of breath. Yeah, it's almost, it's too horrendous to even think about what he could have gone through um, if he was abducted. And uh, particularly in relation to his asthma, that's just an, another added thing that his parents have to think about. And you can just hear in Peter's voice there, this is just a father that is truly, truly frightened about what's happened to his little boy. So very quickly, Leah, word is spreading around the local area that William, this little boy, is missing. Yeah, the volunteers are scouring the street and the bushland, but the terrain was really difficult. As I mentioned before, the thick undergrowth and there's a steep slope surrounding Benaroon Drive, it made it really tough going for all the searchers. And it made many question very early on, including Jane and Peter, whether it was even possible for a small child like William to wander more than a few metres into that bush. Because it just doesn't make sense for him to, there was no way in the world he would run into that bush. No way in the world. Just it, impossible. Impossible. I mean, people were searching in that bush and coming back with ripped jeans yeah. and ripped overalls and yeah. ripped SES uniforms. And it's just, there is no way in the world a three-year-old would do that. Yeah. And for him to, to run down to the street, I can't see it. I, I, I can't see it. It's not a child lost. No, it was never a child lost. You couldn't not do it. You needed yeah. to have mm. that to support mm. the potential it, options of what yeah. could be, right? So you That's had to make sure you, you rule it out. You had to rule it out. had to rule it out. So it's becoming increasingly clear, Leah, that even Jane and Peter in those first initial moments did not think it was possible for William to wander by himself into that bush. 
That's right. But they concede now that while we know now that he didn't wander into that bush, they had to do the ground search. They had to rule that out because that's obviously the first thing that crosses your mind when a child goes missing is that they've just wandered off. So they accept, as they said um, in that interview, that the ground search had to be done to rule that out. So they believe that he was taken by someone? They do believe that now and they definitely thought that back then. Leah, we've spoken quite substantially about what was happening at that stage to Peter and Jane, but yet again there is a little girl, Lindsay, who is William's oldest sister... What was going on with Lindsay at that stage? And I understand a police officer arrived and wanted to ask her about what she may have thought happened to William. Yeah, so a local off-duty female police officer arrived on the scene shortly after all this was going on, having again heard about this missing boy. So she was the one who actually initially interviewed Lindsay and sat her down and, and had a chat to her about whether she could offer any insight into what happened to William, having been there, but also where he might have gone. So, you know, asking her if he had any hiding places around the area and, and things like that. What did Lindsay say? Lindsay basically said that she didn't know of any hiding places and that she couldn't really offer any information that would help, unfortunately. And how was Lindsay when she was told that little William was gone? Jane and Peter don't really like to talk about Lindsay and and her story and her perspective on this. Um, I did ask them about that, but they, as I said, want to leave that for her to tell. So how they told her and what her reaction was, I'm still not sure of. The police investigation and the search has really stepped up. There are lots of neighbours getting involved searching for William. Of course, Jane is back at the house. Peter is continuing to search. And now another police officer is also continuing to make inquiries to neighbours. So other officers were continuing to search inside the neighbouring houses and questioning the residents. Some neighbours were investigated more thoroughly than others. uh, And Senior Constable Rowley's statement talks about that. At 2.40pm that day, Sergeant Kendall and I were searching the yard of a small brick residence. Repeated knocks at the door bore no result and on the eastern side of the house we saw a wooden box had been fabricated and installed over what we thought could be a window. Its design completely covered the window, blocking out any light or vision. On the southern side of the house, a window was slightly ajar and Sergeant Kendall stated he heard running water. We looked in a gap in the window and saw the head of a male person. I said, ''Go to your door now, please. It's the police.'' The front door was unlocked and he was spoken to. He allowed the police to search his house. So, Leah, as the police search was continuing for William, authorities then started to call in the sniffer dogs. I believe one sniffer dog was used, or they tried to use the sniffer dog, but they couldn't. Why? Yeah, so Senior Constable Matthew Gates with his general purpose sniffer dog, PD Gov, and they arrived about two hours after William disappeared. And Senior Constable Gates then later recalled in his official police statement why they had trouble tracking the scent. Upon my arrival, I assessed the area and found that tracking was impossible. This is due to the amount of time that had passed between William Tyrrell going missing and the time it took for me to travel to Kendall. During my assessment of the area, I was told William Tyrrell was last seen at the rear of the house. The house is the last cul-de-sac which is bound by thick bushland. It sits on the top of the hill. The easiest line of travel for a person leaving the house was downhill in an easterly direction. I decided it would be most effective for me to begin a search of all the yards heading downhill away from the house. 
This was also the direction of travel to the Kendall Township, which I believed to be the most likely place a child would walk. I started searching all the rear yards heading in a westerly direction down Benaroon Drive. I was followed by two general duties police and several members of the public who started a line search approximately 20 metres behind me. PD Governor I checked in the sheds, play equipment, garden or any other area a child might hide in. The police behind me spoke to any residents they could find and checked any houses that were unlocked. They also double-checked the areas PD Governor I had searched. When we got to the last house on the northern side of Benaroon Drive, we crossed to the southern side and began to search in the same way, back up the hill towards the end of the cul-de-sac. At no time had I located a scent or starting point for a search or track. No items of clothing or property relating to William Tyrrell were located during this search. So again, that police statement was being read by an actor. Leah, we heard earlier from Dennis, who of course was the police officer involved in the Daniel Morecambe case, the missing boy in Queensland. He also has some interesting insights into what investigators would have been looking at in those first few moments after William disappeared. Yeah, so while this was obviously still being treated as a case of a little boy that had wandered off into the bush, Dennis explains that obviously police would have also had to consider a number of other alternate possibilities as to what could have happened to William. So he explains that. Clearly, you'd have to uh, investigate all of the close relatives, the people living in the house, um, neighbours either side, and obviously the foster family who are away, and you would have to have a... um, you know, a network from either one, whether you would you would see a graph coming up from who they knew, why they knew them, who would have been at the house, who could have been at the house, um, who had they been talking to in days up to it, and uh, whatnot. And then you would then find out the web of people that you'd have to go and get versions of events from and test alibis. Leah, as the ground search continues, of course, police are looking at who may have been involved. They're already looking at suspects and they spoke with Jane and Peter about their relationship and the details with the birth parents. Yeah, so obviously in a case like Williams, parental abduction, as I mentioned in the last episode, is quite common. So obviously the police initially began questioning them about this situation with the birth family. Jane and Peter actually immediately declared that they didn't believe the birth family could be responsible for it, but police certainly did feel there was a strong possibility this was a case of parental abduction. So that's why the officers in Sydney, as we mentioned, were tasked with visiting the home of William's biological parents, Stacey and Daniel, to determine if they'd been involved. And Dennis explains this thought process. I think uh, that in in a case similar to, to William's, where you have a fractured family unit, there are are a lot of, I guess, interested parties that you'd be looking at. But certainly you'd have to be looking at uh, the immediate family on all sides, whether they be the guardians and or the the, uh, biological mother or father and associated close relatives. They would have to be the initial uh, investigation. They can be ruled in or out quite easily um, by corroboration of the story that they're trying to tell you. But the most important part as an investigator is to, doesn't matter who you're investigating at the time, whether it be the mother, the father, or the brothers or the sisters, is to get them on tape as quickly as possible because you've got to get a version down pat. If you get a version from them and they stand solid on that version, then you can start picking their story apart. 
if you don't get that story down pat and they get information or they're allowed to evolve their story, it becomes increasingly difficult to find out when or whether they are telling lies or whether they're changing their story because they have, a, uh, you know, human beings will always change a story given um, different amounts of time and, and what they hear on the grapevine or what they hear on TV or whatever else, how they get information. But if you get a full solid story from them as soon as you possibly can, we've got something we can pick apart. And Leah, not only were the birth parents in these initial few hours heavily scrutinised, so were Jane and Peter, William's foster parents. Yeah, and particularly Peter, because he wasn't there when William went missing, he was immediately looked at with suspicion. So his alibi, having been in a nearby town and visiting the pharmacy, was immediately scrutinised as well. If the child is taken from a, a playground or a, or a swimming pool area, you know, the opportunistic attitude of the pedophile is always going to be there, but you've provided the opportunity. In this area out there, my understanding is that the opportunity wasn't provided. Uh, uh, William was quite known to the area. Uh, he knew it was OK and safe to play. They had done so, obviously, on a number of occasions. Um, and it was a rural area, so it wasn't as if it was just passing traffic. So... In your own mind as an investigator, you would have to be looking close to home. If you weren't looking close to be home, close to home for uh, suspects, you would be negligent because it would be difficult to understand how an opportunistic target or an opportunistic predator could find an opportunistic target in an out-of-the-way area. Leah, what's important to note about Peter's alibi is police later verified his whereabouts through receipts from the pharmacy because he had to pick up a script. And also they did verify that mobile phone reception was very difficult and they did verify that he did make that work call. That's right. They verified all of that, obviously, with the technology um, that was available that he was using. They were able to verify that that phone call did happen, that the people that were on the phone call were on the phone call, and also the text messages that he sent. They can obviously look that up, triangulate where he was when he sent it. So at this early stage, there was no reason to suspect he or Jane weren't telling the truth about what happened, but obviously they weren't able to completely rule them out yet. Jane and Peter were obviously terrified something had happened to William and it seems in those crucial few hours so were police because very quickly they issued an Amber Alert. Tell us what that is about. Yeah, so Superintendent Paul Fion, who was the local police commander, had arrived on scene that afternoon and taken control of the investigation and he decided it was time to issue an Amber Alert. Now, an Amber Alert is an urgent broadcasting message which is sent out to all the media agencies um, in the case of a um, child abduction um, where there is a high risk of the child being um, harmed. It's not used very often. It's certainly not used every time time a child goes missing and it's not taken lightly, they'll only issue it when they believe that the child is in potential danger. And that's why media outlets are required to broadcast the alert in full when it is issued. It generally just includes the name of the child, a photo, a description of what they might be wearing and the general area where they might be found. But this posed a bit of a problem for police in the William Tyrrell case because, as we mentioned, he's a foster child and it means that his identity was supposed to be kept confidential. But Commander Fion decided that this was a serious situation and that surpassed the need to keep his identity confidential. Leah, you've mentioned that it's quite unusual for police to issue an Amber Alert so quickly after a child goes missing. What was different about this case? 
Look, I think in this case, as I've mentioned before, parental abduction, while common, is also one of the things that they strongly considered in this case, particularly in that first um, few days. So I think that would have definitely contributed to their decision to issue an Amber Alert if they thought that that was a possibility here, um, that perhaps an Amber Alert was necessary to try and track down wherever they had taken him. And within hours of that Amber Alert being issued, the media was all across this story as journalists started to report that William was missing. You were a journalist at that stage. So what was unfolding at that stage? Yeah, so I was working as a crime reporter at uh, Sydney newspaper, the Sunday Telegraph, and we all received that Amber Alert um, as well. And while we reported it that day on, on the Friday when he went missing in the media, we didn't rush to the scene. Um, I know myself, my newsroom decided that it was likely he would be found by the time we would arrive in Kendall. It was, you know, four, four and a half hours away. And kids are normally found pretty quickly when an Amber Alert goes out. So we just thought that by the time we got there, he would would have already been found. So we made the decision not to go to Kendall until the following day. And unfortunately, as we know, um, the next day he he still wasn't found. Leah, it was starting to get dark in Kendall that first day that William had disappeared. I cannot even begin to imagine what it was like for Peter and Jane. Peter would have still been out there searching. Jane told you that she was getting up and she could see torches as uh, neighbours and locals and volunteers and police and rescue were continuing to search for little William in the dark. Take us through what that first night was like for them without William. So normally in a search like this, they do tend to suspend the search when it gets dark. But as you've mentioned, this search never did stop that night. People were wandering around all night with torches, looking for William, calling out his name. And Jane's told me she recalls seeing the torches and hearing voices outside throughout that night as they tried to get some much needed rest, but also tried to comfort Lindsay. Um, You know, their priority, other than finding William at that stage, was to make sure that Lindsay felt safe, that she felt protected and that life remained somewhat normal for her. So they were ensuring that she could get some sleep and that she didn't feel scared. Um, But her and Peter didn't sleep a wink themselves that night. In fact, Peter recalls slipping in and out of consciousness, hearing phantom noises outside. He thought he heard William calling out for him in in his semi-conscious state. And they both got up countless times during that first night to go outside to the command post to see if there was any news. And unfortunately, there wasn't. And in running through their mind at that night would have been, where is William? Is he safe? Is he cold? Is he okay? Who is he with? Can you begin to imagine, have they shared that with you, what was running through their mind that night? It's hard for them to put into words what's running through their mind that night. Not only are they faced with the awful reality that if he has wandered into the bush, he's going to be spending the night cold and alone and scared. But the alternative that someone had taken him and that he's in the arms of a stranger was just even more terrifying for them. So Leah, we're set to find out more about the investigation and some key clues in the next episode. 
So we will go over the search that really ramps up over the coming days to try to find William if he is lost in that bush. And we'll also talk about the police investigation, which looks into other scenarios, including treating Jane and Peter as suspects. We will also talk about some key details that both Jane and Peter remember about who was at the scene when William went missing. Where's William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. Additional voices by Dom Halen, Adam Gleason, and Sophie Hicks-Lloyd. Special thanks to Dennis Martin for his contribution. Some of the music in this week's episode is provided by Storyblocks. Thanks to everyone in the 10 News team for their support and assistance. You can contact the show at whereswilliam at network10.com.au If you have any information that may assist in this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.whereswilliam.org. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.